Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin on this Christmas Day as Christians celebrate the birth of the prophet Jesus with the country's foundation as a Christian nation and the legacy of settler freedom that has the language of freedom in American culture claimed by the political right and how it can be reclaimed. Joining us is Aziz Rana, a professor of law at Boston College Law School, where his research and teaching centers on American constitutional law and political development, as well as how shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped legal and political identity since the founding. He's the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom and the forthcoming book, The Constitutional Bind, How Americans Came to Idolize a Document That Fails Them. He recently hosted a forum, Reclaiming Freedom, available in paperback and in print in the latest issue of the Boston Review. Then we'll examine the theocratic capture of our Supreme Court and the moral authoritarianism that has brought about a reversal in women's reproductive rights by activist judges in the pockets of plutocrats. Joining us is Lisa Graves, the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for Nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. And before we begin, as the year rapidly comes to a close, many are looking for tax deductions, so I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And on this Christmas Day, we're speaking with Aziz Rana, who's a professor of law at Boston College Law School, where his research and teaching centers on American constitutional law and political development, as well as how shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped legal and political identity since the founding. He's the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom and The Constitutional Bind, How Americans Came to Idolize the Document That Fails Them, which is a forthcoming book. And he recently hosted a forum, Reclaiming Freedom, available in print in the latest issue of the Boston Review. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aziz Rana. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to, to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And in terms of the document that fails us, in obviously referring to the founding documents uh, of the American Constitution, one of the most powerful offices in the country is occupied by a Christian nationalist, Mike Johnson. And on this Christmas Day, um, it's hard not to notice the uh, the power and influence of a very anti-democratic movement in the sense that they want to basically get undermine, if not abolish, the First Amendment, which is a fundamental part of the American Constitution. Yeah, I mean, so I one of the things that I emphasize in the book is how the constitutional system has embedded within it very specific incentive structures. So if you were to zoom out right now in this moment, there are really troubling developments within political life, there are figures like Johnson that have constituencies that are, you know, essentially opposed to the idea of a multiracial democracy and to a, a secular, inclusive country. But they represent a minority. And one of the things that is most troubling is that the interplay of our institutions from state-based representation um, in, in the, the Senate to how that ends up influencing the gerrymandering of districts in the House, to the structure of the Electoral College, and how that influences the presidency, how all of this ends up shaping Supreme Court nomination processes, means that a minority of the population has outsized political influence well beyond what would be assumed based on the cultural and kind of demographic significance of those views. And it's not just that this means that we have a system of minority rule. It means that the this system essentially incentivizes those actors to then invest in counter-majoritarian tools, whether the Supreme Court or a general view that multiracial democracy is a threat to their own values. 
that then feeds into certain types of authoritarian tendencies. And in a way, I think this is a moment for us to reflect both on why is it that those views have such a purchase within a segment of the American public, but then why is it that we have institutions that essentially elevate them well beyond what is their popular support and significance? We live in a moment where actually a majority of Americans want a set of progressive outcomes that our institutions and our political class seem ill-equipped to be able to provide us. Well, I think an example of this distortion going back to the founding documents is that liberty, the right-wing version of liberty, particularly when it comes to guns, is threatening life and the pursuit of happiness. And given the Heller decision that turned the Second Amendment on its head, is there any way to reverse that? Is there any way for a political movement against this fanatic minority that's allowing anybody and everybody to have an assault rifle? And we've reached a point now where we're not safe on the streets, we're not safe in churches, in, in malls, uh, in cinemas, and in schools. The, the Second Amendment says a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state when we're neither secure or free. Yeah, so I mean, I, I, I completely agree with your concerns. And I'd also say that, you know, my own view of my own interpretation of the Second Amendment is that cases like Heller that presented as an individual right that is essentially, you know, beyond extensive regulation by the state or the federal government is a misread of the actual intentions behind the Second Amendment in the first place. But be that as it may, the bigger problem here is that unlike most constitutional systems around the world, the U.S. is set up where constitutional debate is funneled into a Supreme Court. In other words, that you have nine justices, they're nominated and confirmed through an appointments process that dramatically overrepresents the perspective of this minority because of the fact that it runs through the Electoral College and the presidency and the setup of the, the Senate. Um, just to give an indication of this, even though eight of the last nine presidential elections, the majority party, uh, the, the person that won the majority of the vote was a Democratic candidate, we have a situation now where Trump, who did not win a majority, was able to nominate and get confirmed to the Supreme Court three justices. And it hasn't been since 1946 that a Democratic president has been able to actually nominate and confirm the chief justice to the Supreme Court. And in total, basically since the 1960s, we've had five justices nominated and confirmed by the Democratic Party. So you have a malapportioned appointments process, and then all of the constitutional decision-making goes to this court where justices serve for life, where in most places around the world, if there are real concerns about constitutional politics, it's not just the Supreme Court that makes the decision, but you have popular avenues like an amendment process. So generally the way this works is that you might require a majority or a supermajority to get a, an amendment proposed out of a legislative branch, and then it goes to a national referendum where you need majority to support the constitutional change or maybe a supermajority. If there's federal distributional requirements, it might mean that you need a majority of states like in a place like Australia. But in the US, the amendments process is foreclosed. We widely believe to have the hardest amendment process in the world to use. You need two thirds in both houses of Congress and then three fourths of the states, which mean that means that any issue of massive national significance, you can't change through amendments. And so we have a situation now where there actually is broad national agreement that we need gun control in a meaningful way, but it's all funneled through a right-wing court who's essentially captured by an extreme of the public perspective. And so you couldn't actually get constitutional change through the, national, the natural means. And I'd say the same thing about abortion. If we had a functional constitutional system, we'd be able very easily, honestly, to get a constitutional amendment passed establishing reproductive rights as a, an explicit uh, formal matter in the text of the Constitution. Because you could, you know, it's pretty clear that there's a supermajority of support for this. It could get through a functioning legislative branch and then have a national referendum. 
But because of the vice grip that the court has over constitutional politics, you end up with outcomes that are wildly disconnected from what most people want. And both, I think, reproductive rights and gun control speak to essentially the paralysis and the, the kind of undemocratic inversion that our institutions implement against really the will of an organized and thoughtful majority. But in terms of counter-majoritarianism, the poster boy, to my mind, for the counter-majoritarian nature of the Supreme Court and the structures that you've just discussed, which allow this distortion. One man who was a Opus Dei right-wing Catholic fanatic, I mean, he's way out there. He doesn't represent the diversity within Catholicism, let alone the diversity within American religion. And after all, we're talking on Christmas, the birthday of the prophet Jesus. And here you have Leonard Leo, along with the Koch brothers and all the dark money from the plutocrats. He's handpicked at least five of these right-wing justices on the Supreme Court. How is that? And now he's got a, a, a huge fund of $1.8 billion from one plutocrat, which he's going to deploy uh, now that he's captured the judiciary, he's going to deploy it to capture the legislative branch. So this is American plutocracy on steroids, and it all traces back to another Supreme Court decision, Citizens United. Uh, um, certainly, and then uh, honestly, even before that, it, there's a decision from the 1970s called Buckley versus Vallejo, which is where the the Supreme Court essentially said that money was going to be treated as speech for purposes of the First Amendment, and that essentially opened up in various ways the use of money as something that floods into political campaigns. But just to kind of um, sort of reiterate the point you're making at a kind of broader scale that sort of integrates the question of the intensification of the American right with the nature of our institutions. I think it's really useful to appreciate the disconnect between this moment and let's say the moment in the 1980s. If we were having this conversation about the right in the 1980s, it would just be the case, even though these are views that I disagree with, that the two most popular politicians of the latter part of the 20th century were Presidents Nixon and, and Reagan. They won absolute landslide elections. They were governors of the most populous state in the country. And you could make an argument that the ideas of the right were ascendant in terms of a defense of market fundamentalism or reaction against the civil rights movements and various social movements of inclusion around issues of gender and sexuality. And that, if anything, the Republican Party was a majority party. The big thing that's happened, and I think this is in the context of really the collapse of many of the ideas about the, the market, about race, about foreign policy and a kind of belligerence broad, the collapse of many of the ideas associated with the right has pushed the country in the direction of a kind of center-left politics in which the Republican Party is just simply not a majority party. Its politicians, even its popular politicians like Trump, are deeply reviled by a majority of the public. And that's essentially produced a kind of conundrum for elites on the right, which is you have two pathways. And this is the two pathways over the last decade. One pathway is to try to recover a majority by speaking to the, the center and building out a coalition that's representative of the country as a whole. A second pathway is to say, well, there are these institutional devices in our political system, like the Supreme Court, or like gerrymandering at the state level, or the use of state-based representation to control the Senate, given the fact that we're moving toward a country by 2030, estimates say where 70% of the population is just in 15% of the state, so you can win the Senate and have wildly kind of limited mass popular support. And what folks like Leonard Leo to me embody was the choice to invest in essentially the undemocratic apparatuses of the state in order to be able to hold on to power even while losing majority support. And one of the things that we're seeing, you can even read something like the uh, capital attack and the effort to subvert and overthrow a 
democratically elected president in 2020, 2021, as once you start investing in those tools, then that essentially psychologizes a defense of abandoning democracy at all, of viewing democracy itself as a threat and seeing authoritarianism as essential to holding on to power. And it's that vicious cycle that's been intensifying on the right. And that speaks, I think, to this, this kind of striking combination of actual popular weakness while really profound institutional strength buttressed by a billionaire class and the kind of dark money that you described. Well, I think you can make the case then, Aziz Rana, that the political center, which was always sought after in politics and, and in presidential races, that in the primaries on the right, you move to the right and then move back to the center for the general, and on the left in the primaries, you move to the left and then move back to the center in the general. That's always been the kind of tradition, if you will, of American politics. As far as I can tell, there is no center left in the uh, Republican Party. The political center in this country is now with the Democratic Party. The Republican Party has become a far-right party. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's absolutely the case. And honestly, you can, you can tell this as a story about the Supreme Court itself and then what that indicates about the sort of the elimination of center-right from the Republican coalition. So 30 years ago, the question of abortion was back on the table for the Supreme Court in a case that was decided in 1992 called Casey. The general view at the time was if you were just counting which which person on the Supreme Court was nominated by a Republican, that you'd think that Roe v. Wade was going to get overturned. Eight of the nine justices were Republican nominees. The one that was not was somebody named White, who had been nominated by Kennedy, was opposed to Roe v. Wade, and so represented an earlier period of of, um, the Democratic Party. But what ended up happening, though the right was hemmed in in all sorts of um, striking ways, the court ended up upholding what it called the central holding of Roe. And the reason was that that Republican Party coalition, for all of its problems, still stitched together something like a political majority and had folks across the spectrum from Justice Stevens, who ended up becoming among the most progressive figures on the court, to individuals that you can think of as truly embodying the far right like Scalia. 30 years later, when the Supreme Court, again, a Republican majority, supermajority, overturns Roe v. Wade and Dobbs, it's a very different situation. Four of the nine justices had been nominated by presidents that lost the popular vote. The constellation of justices themselves, precisely because of the efforts of the Federalist Society and people like Leonard Leo, was really about not having the court embody the the sort of the plurality of views in society, but essentially packing the court with a hard right that could hold the tide against overwhelming popular support. And it's a kind of cultural shift on the right that then plays out at every effective level of government, where, you know, in a sense, people ask the question of did Trump, you know, take over the Republican Party and then replace the right previously? I think a better way of thinking about it is that over the last set of decades, a set of racial, extreme racial, cultural and economic views became dominant within the elite of the party, and then was replicated across all of its institutional forms. And that, of course, I think went hand in hand with the big picture issue in the U.S., which is the politics of the center, especially associated with market deregulation, faith in the national security state, a commitment to the idea that the U.S. was becoming post-racial All of this over the last two decades has faced intense crises because of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, issues of mass incarceration, various rolling and unfolding crises. And so the way that that impacted the right was to intensify this authoritarian populism. The way it impacted the left, I think, was similarly to revive 
I think, uh, an emancipatory vision of social democracy that you see spread both among young people and across different bases of the, the left and the center left. And it means now we're at this kind of um, inflection point in American life where we have a much more aggressive hard right, we have a more self-assertive left, but we don't have the institutions right now to effectively ensure that the majority and the majority of views that want to deal in a forthright way with American, you know, fundamental American crises while being inclusive, solidaristic, and open to all, have pathways to actually have their views expressed in, in politics. So in terms of your book, Reclaiming Freedom, uh, Aziz Rana, um, you basically, you, the book argues that freedom is, has a dual legacy. On the one hand, it stands for the great struggles long associated with the left, from abortion and anti-colonialism to women's and queer liberation. But the curious thing that's happened within American culture is that the language of freedom has been claimed almost entirely by the political right. So the question then emerges, can it be reclaimed? Yeah, so I, I should say the the book that I have that's uh, forthcoming is called The Constitutional Bind. And that's about thinking of the constitutional system in the context of our contemporary issues and debates. What you're referencing is a forum issue of the Boston Review called Reclaiming Freedom, where I have a, a lead essay and then a number of just phenomenal scholars and commentators um, wrote uh, really powerful responses thinking about just this question of the relationship between the left and freedom. Um, and so that's now available. You can purchase it as a volume. You can read it online at the Boston Review. And um, I would ask um, folks to do so and to, to engage with all of the essays that are there. So point of the piece and the volume as a whole is the kind of strangeness of American debates around freedom in a sense that if we were in most parts of the world, freedom is very clearly a language of the left. It's associated with all of those struggles and struggles for inclusion that you described. But in the U.S., when you hear the word freedom, you're almost conditioned to think that this is a language of the right and frankly, a kind of white nationalist far right the sort of don't tread on me, um, you know, uh, my my freedom requires a kind of belligerent, individualistic, zero-sum uh, relationship to others. And the argument that I make is that while um, left accounts of freedom that are more inclusive, solidaristic, recognize the world as interdependent and as requiring people to be able to collectively enjoy agency, to make decisions about the most important questions that affect their life. And so to press for more democratic workplaces, democratic and participatory political arrangements, more solidaristic accounts of reproductive care that take place in the family and link the family to various types of social support. While these that's, that approach has kind of real purchase in American life, their background structural reasons why the right's, you know, um, extreme and individualistic version of freedom tends to be dominant. And the claim I make is that has a lot to do with the nature of American expansion across the continent in the 19th century and the rise of American global power in the 20th. In the 19th century, the primary way that Anglo-American, um, uh, Anglo Anglo-European um, settlers in North America were able to enjoy something like freedom was by claiming land. And that meant conquest and expropriation of indigenous people. And it also was tied to then ensuring that the hard work that was not viewed as inherently free was done by someone. And that was addressed through coerced labor, especially with respect to enslaved Black persons. And all of it created this really troubling combination of, on the one hand, rich accounts of self-mastery, of unencumbered individuals that own property or able to build a life that they want for themselves, but tied to acts of, you know, real control and power over others. And then in the 20th century, 
even though the U.S. really fundamentally changed its national narrative, became far more inclusive and universalistic, adopted a civil rights frame, rejected the old politics of settler conquest, there was an interesting mirroring that took place, which is as the U.S. became the dominant global power in the context of World War II and of the Cold War, this took a place against the backdrop of the collapse of the old European empires and the transformation, really, of the global economy on terms that benefited the U.S. The U.S. gains dollar hegemony. Its currency is the global currency. It presses to reconstruct other societies in keeping with American interests, including to open up various types of markets. And all of this promotes an overseas relationship built on intervention, on rereading opposition in places like Asia and Africa as a failure to understand the benefits of American freedom, and as again tying domestic economic well-being, the boom times of the 50s and the mid-century, to a kind of militarized corporate interest in which the U.S. has the right essentially to intervene wherever it wants, and it can step inside and outside of legal relationships. And all of that, again, kind of fed the language of entrepreneurship, unfettered individualism that somebody like Reagan and, and even Nixon ended up embodying, and that became very closely associated with freedom in a way that just was not the case in many other places where freedom remained a language of anti-colonial resistance of solidaristic democracy. And the takeaway for me about this, and this is what the, the, the forum then debates, is that it highlights how recovering the language of freedom for the left in the US is not just a question of communication and marketing strategy for the Democratic Party. Democrats should talk about freedom. It's that the left broadly have to rebuild the kinds of institutions and everyday experiences that would make inclusive, democratic, solidaristic ideas of freedom organic in people's daily lives. So that your workplace isn't just hierarchically organized, but feels like it's expression of common care and common decision-making through strong unions, through more participatory frameworks, that politics isn't just run by money from above, but feels like a place where folks can meaningfully intervene, and as we were discussing with the constitutional system, then actually have their views have an effect. And that to the extent that people do not organically experience a democratic account of freedom, it's not surprising that the right's able to capture this language. And so addressing this issue requires, perhaps counterintuitively, a, a commitment to institution building and to policies that recover a sense of solidarity. And then the other thing it requires is appreciating how the domestic and the foreign really are interconnected. If the U.S. maintains a militarized relationship to the world and an extractive relationship to the rest of the world, it will inevitably end up influencing and negatively affecting the ability domestically to think in more inclusive and solidaristic terms about politics. Well, Aziz Rana, I thank you so much for joining us on this Christmas day. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Aziz Rana, who's a professor of law at Boston College Law School, where his research and teaching centers on American constitutional law and political development, as well as how shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped legal and political identity since the founding. He's the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom and The Constitutional Bind, How Americans Came to Idolize a Document That Fails Him, which is a forthcoming book. And he recently hosted a forum, Reclaiming Freedom, which is available now in paperback and in print in the latest edition of the Boston Review. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now on this Christmas Day is Lisa Graves, the Executive Director of the new corporate watchdog group True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Justice Department, as Chief Counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a Deputy Chief of the Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lisa Graves. Thank you so much for having me on, Ian. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thanks for joining us, Lisa. And clearly, the law is paramount at the moment in terms of our politics. There's efforts underway, of course, to take Trump off the ballot. You've had the ruling from the Colorado Supreme Court, which I'm assuming the Supreme Court will strike it down. But it sort of reflects a frustration in the country, particularly on the political left, of how do you get rid of this horrible, fascist, grotesque parody of Donald Trump? And obviously, it's better to do it by the ballot. But because he's so lawless and contemptuous of the law, then he's run up 91 charges. So you can't ignore the criminality of this man. You have to deal with the criminality. But it's so wrapped up in politics that if you disqualify him in any way, all that does is reinforce his MAGA base in the belief that the, the deep state is out to get their hero and martyr. So how do you see this interaction between politics and law at, at this moment? Well, I do think that the decision by the Colorado Supreme Court was a brave one, and it's a well-reasoned one. And it is an open question of whether this U.S. Supreme Court will um, uphold it or not. I think about, you know, this question of, um, you know, what is the process uh, in this circumstance? Um, it is a really important question. And I I think that the um, men who wrote the 14th Amendment were well aware that someone who had fomented insurrection could win office uh, in the states where they had fomented insurrection uh, uh, before the Civil War and, and, and during it. And so I, I think they were attempting to uh, make sure that if you, if you subvert this Constitution, if you violate your oath to defend this Constitution from enemies, foreign and domestic, that you're forbidden from running for office, even if that's popular among some people, as with the South, the Southern Confederate states. And so I do think it's, um, but it's a real question of how to apply that in this current period. And I personally don't think there was any notion that people would have to be convicted of insurrection to be barred. Um, it's manifest on its face that Trump was involved in, actively involved, not just on January 6th in, um, in, pushing people to uh, to go assail the Capitol, to march on the Capitol, to stop that vote, but that he had engaged in weeks of preparations and planning to try to subvert that election, to, to engage in insurrection. Um, but I, I take your point, Ian. We don't know what the court will do. And ideally, in a democratic system, um, that issue is that it, the issue of fitness for office is solved at the polls by voters who are well-informed. And we're in this very strange and in fact horrific scenario now where the cult that backs Trump is seemingly immune from facts about his unfitness and grows closer to him the, the more revelations come forward about his, illegal, his lawlessness, his devotion to destruction of our culture um, and his even his invocation of Nazi rhetoric. And so I, I just think we can't let the distorted and warped views of the people who back him guide what, uh, what the rule of law means. Um, and that includes, to me, actively pursuing the, the legitimate criminal charges against him based on solid evidence that the complaints reveal, as well as the civil suits against him, again, based on substantial evidence of his culpability. And so I think we, the rest of the people who are not um, captured by this charlatan have to move forward and advance the rule of law at every turn and defend the rule of law and make sure that no one is above the law, including Trump, 
uh, and any president, whether they are president or a former president, that they are not immune from being held accountable for violating our criminal and civil laws. And a few a few days ago in Iowa, as the Iowa caucus is uh, getting close, CNN did a poll of Trump voters or likely voters, uh, Republican voters, and they found that something like 42 percent liked Trump's Nazi rhetoric. They want more Hitler. I mean, my God, what's happening to the country? Well, when you think about 42 percent, not to be a glass half full sort of person entirely, but like that is not a majority, right? It's a minority of uh, of that party, which is a minority of Americans. It's substantial. It's clearly in the millions, given the number of people who voted for him before. But it's not the majority, and it and it is terrifying that people would would so willingly embrace such grotesque rhetoric um, of Trump, and and would embrace, you know, this whole. Sort of, um, I wouldn't call it a movement, but the, this whole mindset that he has put forward, this very hateful um, and disrespectful um, approach to to our world, to governing, to culture. Um, but it is a minority. And so it's disappointing to see that people who, you know, you'd like to think are people of common sense or the salt of the earth would be so uh, enamored with him um, or, or so willing to um, willing to uh, sort of go with the, the lowest common denominator is bile and, and hate or discrimination and, uh, and the like, that they would embrace that rhetoric. So it's disappointing, but it's not the majority of the American people. Um, and that actually gives me, you know, great hope. So the minority, though, the plutocratic minority that have that have literally, uh, through Leonard Leo, have stacked the judiciary in the Supreme Court, arguably we are in a, a second Gilded Age. How is the formula then between the few that have money, the power of the few that have money, versus the many? And when you think about what Liz Cheney's been saying recently, which is that we're sleepwalking into dictatorship, What's going to mobilize the majority to counter the money power of this extreme minority? Well, it's, I mean, it's certainly the case that Trump has individual donors who support him, small dollar donors. He, in fact, uses them like an ATM. I get his, his uh, text on a regular basis, you know, basically plying them for uh, more cash. But it's not just that. He's actually been uh, supported by some very rich, rich billionaires on the right wing, not all of them, but a, a significant number that have really helped carry him forward in this extreme vision. Um, and it is a threat. We, I, I think um, he's right that we are uh, really um, in a place where there's someone who is actively basically calling for himself to become a dictator and to act like a dictator and to have a dictatorship in America that would destroy democracy in our country um, in, a, in a way that probably would be irreparable. Um, but the thing that that, you know, um, aggressiveness, that that um, that that persistence of this very extreme um, set of views requires is for us to not give in, is for us to cultivate hope, for us to stand together against that sleepwalk toward dictatorship, um, to continue to uh, speak with our friends and neighbors and coworkers and, you know, the store clerks and and what have you to talk about what's at stake for our country, that our democracy, our freedoms really are at stake. And someone like Trump would not hesitate to destroy our freedoms in order to gain an advantage or to advance his um, his arrogance or his, um, you know, malevolent view of the world. And I say that in my personal capacity, obviously, in terms of describing him. But the, but the fact is, is that the enemy, the enemy isn't just uh, uh, this, this um, effort to bring us toward a dictatorship. That is, in fact, uh, the enemy, and it is an enormous threat. But the other enemy is cynicism and hopelessness. And we cannot give in to that cynicism. We cannot give in to that hopelessness. We can't give in to these, you know, very long away from the election polls. Um, that, that the polls that we've seen in, in the recent weeks actually are 
in direct contradiction with the actual voting of Americans in elections in Kansas uh, in 2022, in Wisconsin uh, last, last, last earlier this year, um, in uh, Ohio, um, and also those midterms, uh, the midterm elections, which were said to be a red wave, and it, it wasn't. And so, in fact, when Americans have had a chance to vote on the issues that they care about or, or see the elections as a, a vehicle to, to weigh in on the issues they care about, progressive issues, progressive ideas, and progressive candidates can win. That doesn't mean that they will win uh, if people do not get out to vote, if people are not uh, motivated to, by their own self-preservation, the preservation of our democracy and our freedoms to come out and vote. So we have a lot of work ahead of us, I say again in my personal capacity, uh, in the coming year to make sure we do not give in to this, um, this push toward um, extremism, that we do not let up, um, that we do not give up hope, and that we do not fall to the cynicism that, that some of the, the, the news and some of the negativity, or the enormous negativity and distortion of Trump, um, you know, his, his distorting effect of his negative rhetoric is having on people's views or mood. The fact is, is that the country is actually moving in a positive direction in so many ways, but that's not good for Trump and his message. And so we just have to, we have to share the good news of good things happening in our lives, in our communities, in our, in our economy, in our country. And we have to stand together with hope. Hope is a force for good. It's actually the ultimate form of resistance. But what do we do about money? I mean, obviously, the Citizens United decision uh, enabled money to capture our politics, not that it, it wasn't already happening, because essentially our legislators are telemarketers. They spend most of their days dialing for dollars and very little of the time actually doing the work of the House and Senate. And that is just a sad truth. And money, of course, is, has bought Clarence Thomas, he he obviously was somebody that that wanted more money. Didn't think his his salary was enough. He obviously has a a great desire for riches, and he found that by hanging out with billionaires, they were like uh, Paul Singer and Harlan Crow, etc. So this the judiciary has been bought to that extent. The legislature's grants is, is all about dialing for dollars. The kind of the defense intelligence and state and all of those officials when they retire they get bought off by the saudis russian oligarchs money is used putin uses the oligarchs as cutouts it funnels money uh, into our politics that's how he helped elect trump in 2016 and will uh, do so or will attempt to do so in 2024 a friend of mine refers to washington as nigeria on the potomac what do we do about the fact that people can be bought? Well, you know, I, um, I, I really appreciate uh, the, the different parts of that question, Ian. And I just want to pause for a moment to say, I, I think we might not have the same views on all of it, uh, or some of the people that you've mentioned have those views, because I actually think there are a lot of good people in Washington and in Congress and the Senate who are trying to do good in the face of this tsunami of money and in the face of the pressure to raise money in order to stay in office because of the Citizens United decision and also not just raise money for themselves, but be connected to um, these outside, you know, the reality of the outside money that is, uh, is, is more than the candidates themselves raise. And so there's no doubt that our um, political system is broken in the sense that the Supreme Court in that Citizens United decision um, just unleashed the tsunami of cash, uh, really empowered billionaires to play an even greater role in, uh, in politics than before, like you said, the second Gilded Age. Um, but but it, and it, it's vital that we have reform, but it's not as bad, it's not as bad as, as some might think in the sense of it, it all being corrupt. I, I don't, I just don't believe that, but I believe that there is a, a lot of corruption and a lot of um, pressure um, that this money has caused. And it really is, uh, it, was, it was problematic before the Senate decision. And as uh, 
Justice Stevens said in his dissent, when the American people look at the American pol- political system, they, the thing they don't think is the problem is the need for more money in politics. But that decision um, uh, is one that was a five to four decision with Clarence Thomas casting the deciding vote in that case, even though Harlan Crow had staked his wife, Jenny, with a $500,000 gift to fund a political organization she was creating to take advantage of the Citizens United decision. He never should have sat on that case. The case never should have been issued. But that's not the only situation where Clarence Thomas has sat on a case that he shouldn't have sat on. He ruled in the five to four Bush v. Gore decision, even though Jenny Thomas, his wife, was screening candidates for jobs in the future Bush administration. And after uh, that Bush v. Gore decision was issued, stopping the recount, uh, had it been a 4-4 decision, that case, that the recount would have continued and Gore would have been found to be the, the rightful president of the United States. After Clarence Thomas cast that vote and did not recuse himself, Jenny Thomas got a raise and a promotion at the Heritage Foundation to become the director of executive branch relations with the Bush administration. In all, Uh, Her salary for the next seven years during the Bush administration was nearly a million dollars that helped feather the nest of Clarence Thomas um, and their home while he was cultivating these relationships with billionaires that has, I think, had a profoundly distorting effect on our law and our country. So there's no doubt that we have an enormous crisis at the Supreme Court in particular, but also with this 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 money, the dark money, this right wing billionaire effort to drive us toward a more fascistic country or fascistic regime. And I just have to say, uh, and you um, have been sounding the alarm on this for years. You have been you were an early voice and are an early voice going back 10 years in uh, in talking about Leonard Leo and talking about this effort to capture the Supreme Court. Obviously, uh, Senator Whitehouse has been leading the charge in the U.S. Senate to expose this scheme. Um, but the fact is, is that um, your voice, your efforts, um, it, it, your efforts are, are one of the early efforts to really shine a light on this crisis. And so I just want to take a moment to thank you, Ian, well, for that, that and for thank you. your tremendous efforts. Yeah. Well, but in terms of Clarence Thomas not recusing himself, of course, the Supreme Court turns around and denies Jack Smith's appeal for a quick resolution on Trump's immunity. Trump, of course, showed his brazen tactic of delay, delay, delay by telling the Supreme Court, oh, take your time. (laughs) I mean, it's unbelievable uh, how brazen it all is. But Clarence Thomas should recuse himself because his wife was an insurrectionist, for God's sake. Yeah, I mean, that that, he he should recuse himself. I mean, he should be removed from office if there's ever uh, a chance for uh, the House representatives uh, to move forward with impeachment proceedings, which I hope uh, it will have that chance, they should. He should be removed from that court, uh, given his lack of character um, that's manifest by everything that's been reported this year and well before then, including, you know, in Jane Mayer's book, uh, way back during the original confirmation uh, hearings for him. Um, you know, he would recuse himself. But I think you're right. I don't think he will, even though it's clear he has no business sitting on this case, given the fact that his his wife was actively trying to subvert this the election, trying to stop the count, uh, texting Mark Meadows, just the portion that's known. There's more that we don't know about her role. We know that she was actively trying to urge legislators in Arizona to stop um, the vote from being certified. Um, and um, if he had any integrity, he would not sit on the cases involving Trump, given, that, given those facts and, and more. But like you said, I don't think that he has he has the integrity to recuse himself from from that case. And that's just going to further taint, taint any ruling by the court. So just in the last few minutes, then, on this uh, Christmas Day, Lisa Graves, you mentioned earlier that things aren't as bad <laughs> as they seem, uh, which I'm, I'm glad because I sometimes think I covering the news and trying to analyze the news five days a week is I'm delivering the daily dose of doom. And of course, there's no underestimating the threat that Donald Trump poses to American democracy and to our future. So we have to, in a sense, um, we have to fight for democracy or see it die. And we don't have a choice here. 
but you did suggest that it's not all bleak and they're not all on the take and all bought and sold for a bunch of whores and hirelings on, in Washington, but there are a lot of decent people there. How can the, uh, then the average person, you know, help uh, buttress the decent people at the same time trying to expose and neutralize the greedy and, and crooked people? Well, I think, let me just say, Ian, I, I hate to, I always hate to contradict you, which is rare, um, because I, I really appreciate your insights and I have deep faith, deep confidence in your analysis. And I know that you're immersed in this in a way that I'm not in terms of the broader spectrum of news that you cover domestically and, and internationally. But I do think that um, there are many reasons to be hopeful. Um, and um, I don't, I feel like I, Keep repeating it, so maybe I'll just rely on if you'll indulge me to share that famous quote from Howard Zinn, the historian who wrote a people's history of, of the United States. He said, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst, it destroys our capacity to do something. And then I'll just fast forward in the quote. He says, um, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future. The future is an infinite succession of presence. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that is bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. So that definitely speaks my heart uh, for what it's worth. Perfect note to end on on this Christmas day. And I appreciate you joining us here. Lisa Graves. Thank you so much, Ian. It's a joy to be your friend, and it's a joy to be on your show. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lisa Graves, who's the executive director of the new corporate watchdog group, True North Research. She has served as a senior advisor in all three branches of the federal government, a deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department, as chief counsel for nominations on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a deputy chief of Article Three Judges Division for the U.S. Courts. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine